Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's God's word. You may be seated. Well, we're starting this series today that's going to go for four weeks. We're calling it The Other 167. And the big question of this series is how do we honor God the other 167 hours of the week? There are 168 hours in a week. Presumably, maybe, one of them is spent here in this room, maybe an hour and some change. What does life look like the rest of it? If you're a follower of Jesus, based on Romans 12 and a lot of other places in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, where we say whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we're to do for the glory of God. Well, if that's true, then that means in all of life, all 168 hours, we're supposed to honor God. We have a decent idea. What does it look like to honor God when we're here and we're gathered together? But what about the other 167? That's what this series is about. Now, maybe you would look at it and go, I don't know that honoring God is a priority for me. I don't know if I consider myself a Christian. I don't know if I'm, I'm not a really religious person. And I don't, what does this have to do with me? Well, well, here's the thing. If you're at all exploring Christianity or interested in Christianity, one of the questions you might have is how does this actually look? How does it flesh out? How does a Christian faith, other than maybe getting you to go to heaven when you die, how does it help you here and now? What does it look like? How does it change your life? Well, that's what this series is going to be as well. You're going to get a little bit of a glimpse of that. So the four topics that we're going to cover over these next four weeks before we start looking verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, the four topics are marriage this week, parenting next week, then money, and then work. Marriage, parenting, money, and work. These are big picture categories that influence all of life. And so that's why we want to look at these. We're talking marriage today, and just before I get into this message, I want to make a recommendation to you of uh, one of my favorite books on marriage. There's a lot of stuff that's been out there that's been written that's really good. Uh, One of my favorite books is uh, by Tim and Kathy Keller. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. If you know me, you won't be surprised that I recommend a book by him. He's like one of my favorite authors and pastors. Um, He's a pastor in New York City. Um, His wife has been a faithful ministry partner with them. She also went to theological school with him, and uh, they wrote this book together. It's called The Meaning of Marriage, Facing the Complexities of Commitment with the Wisdom of God. So it's a book. We have it on our book rack. It's for sale if you want to pick it up or grab it on Amazon. Uh, But this would be a resource if you're looking to build into your marriage that would be really, really helpful uh, for you. I'll actually quote from him a a couple places here in this uh, message. So marriage. From a young age, we have an idea what marriage is like, kind of understand. I had a friend the other day who, 
you know, he, he was delighted that his, uh, one of his daughters told him, someday I want to have a marriage like you and mom. Wouldn't that be great? At a young age, we, we get this figured out. Right? I heard the story of this little girl, and she was telling her mom about the story of Snow White. She said, oh, mom, it's this incredible story. You know, Prince Charming comes in at the end, and he kisses her back to life. And mom, do you know what happens next? And mom says, yeah, they live happily ever after. And the girl goes, no, they get married. <laughs> right? She had a clear idea. Marriage isn't happily ever after. What are you talking about, Mom? And so we have these ideas about marriage. How do we honor God in a marriage? What does a Christian marriage look like? What maybe makes it distinct or different from any other kind of marriage? That's what we're going to look at here today. Now, one of the things I want to just acknowledge at the outset is for some of you, this is very relevant. Right? You're married, you care about your marriage either because it's strong and you want to make it stronger or because it's weak and you want to help fix it. Right? Some of you are very interested, very invested. It takes very little sort of buildup to get you interested in this. Others of you are not married. Right? Some of you are kids or students. You're not married yet. You're not even thinking really about marriage. Some of you are adults who aren't married but you'd like to be. Maybe you've never been married. Some of you are adults who have been married. Maybe you've been married multiple times, and maybe you want to be married again. Or maybe you go, I've been there, done that, have the t-shirt, have the pain, have the, you know, I don't want to go back, right? Some of you, you were married for a long time to a really wonderful person who has now passed on. This is one of the challenges of preaching any moment, right? There's a lot of different people with a lot of different situations in the room. And it's tempting to maybe go, well, you don't know exactly what my thing is. And I, I, I don't. If I left you out of that scenario, I'm sorry. But here's what I want to say. Even if you're not married, this is still an important message for you. If you're not married but you'd like to be, it's really important because it helps you get some commitments of here's what I want marriage to look like. As I look for a spouse or as I plan to be married or as I just think about the person I want to be. And if you're not married and you don't ever want to be married, I think this is still important to you because we live in a culture where marriage is a huge deal. It is completely misunderstood by the culture, what its purpose is. And so you have an opportunity as a Christian to develop in this sermon a, a Christian understanding of, okay, that's what marriage really is about. You have the opportunity as well then to come alongside your married friends and family and to encourage them and to, to strengthen and to support them to pursue what God says is a good approach to marriage. So that's why this is a, a relevant thing wherever you're at. So here's what I want to do for this message. I, I want to do kind of two sections. First, I want to ask, what does the Bible teach about marriage? And just kind of give an overview of the scriptures. Not go too in-depth any one place, uh, but just kind of overview, what does the Bible say? And then I want to ask the question, uh, what are three priorities that can lead to a God-honoring or a godly marriage? Okay, so that's where we'll go. So first, what the Bible teaches about marriage. First place we see anything about marriage is here in Genesis chapter 2. And so if you have your Bible still uh, open, go ahead and look at that with me. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Really interesting just as this starts in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Now this would be interesting if you'd read Genesis 1, because all through Genesis 1, God, said, God made something and he said it was good. Make something else, it's good. Another thing, it's good. At the end, when it's all made, he goes, this is very good. God has made creation. He has made it. He is happy with it. And then he comes along and he says, it's not good that the man should be alone. This is not good. 
He's alone. He needs relationship. God's thinking he needs what I have. See, we believe, that, and the Bible teaches, that God is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God is relationship. God is community. God has never been alone, even though he's one God. And so for God to make man in his image, and then to see that man alone, isn't the complete image of God. So God says, that's not good. I need to make a helper fit for him. That's what he says. I'll make a helper fit for him. That word fit for could also be translated corresponding to him. Corresponding to him. He needs a compatible other. He needs a complementary other. He needs somebody that fits him. That's what God's saying. Then God does something in this passage, it just seems kind of strange when you first read it. He, he starts sort of, he goes, okay, Adam, here's the problem. You're, not, you're alone, that's bad. We've got to fix that. Which, which by the way, let me, let me just say this. This doesn't mean that every person should get married. And that's not what the Bible's saying. It is saying every person needs deep and real relationship. For many people, maybe most people, that will look like marriage. But it doesn't mean everyone has to be married. God says, okay, Adam, you're alone. This isn't good. I'm going to make a helper that's uh, compatible with you, that's a complimentary other to you. And then he starts this sort of parade of animals. Did you, read, did you see that when we read it? You know, God starts, you know, here's every beast, every bird. He brings them to Adam. Hey, Adam, what do you want to name this? And you sort of read it and you go, why is this? that seems weird. Like, God, did you have ADD or what happened? Like, you were talking about you needed to fix him and now you're on this animal naming project. What's happening? What's happening is that God is showing Adam his need. God sees that Adam has a problem. Adam doesn't see it. And so God is going to parade all these animals. Here comes the tortoise, really slowly. Here comes the cheetah. Here comes the rhinoceros. Here comes the dung beetle. Here comes the hummingbird. And, and each time, Adam is able to see, I don't have a complimentary other. And he begins to hunger for it. See, none of the, God wasn't so dumb that he thought, well, maybe Adam and the hippo, I don't know. <laughs> right, I mean, God's not like that. God's purposeful here. He's going, I, I, need, I, need, I need our boy here to feel his need, okay? So then he puts Adam to sleep. And interestingly here, in verse 21, it says, The Lord God caused, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So the animals aren't the right complementary other. It's a woman. And interestingly and importantly, this woman is crafted out of Adam's rib, out of his side. God didn't take a bone from his feet as if to say the woman is below him. And God didn't take a, a, a bone from his head as if to say the woman is above him. But he took the, the bone from his side, from his rib, to say this is a complementary other. This is a helper fit for him. Now some of you might object to the idea of helper, that that sounds denigrating or whatever. Just know this, in the Bible the Holy Spirit is called the helper. God himself is a helper. It doesn't mean less than, it means equal to, but different. A complement, a complementary other. 
This helper also is to be a harmonizing sound, not an echoing sound. Do you get that? Right? God didn't create another man who would just echo everything that Adam was already about. He created a woman who would create a beautiful, harmonizing sound so that together they would be the image of God. This is really important, by the way, as we think through the cultural implications of what is marriage. One of the reasons that we believe that the Bible defines marriage as between one man and one woman is because of this passage. A helper fit for him means a complementary other. The pursuit of same-sex marriage is the pursuit of a complementary same. I'm not saying this is the case in every specific person's uh, thinking, but the reality is, kind of big picture, what what you're looking at in same-sex marriage is a kind of selfishness. It's a kind of saying, I want more like me, rather than saying, I want more of what will complete me. Even our anatomy, even our physical makeup speaks to this complementary other. And so God makes, Ad, or makes uh, Eve out of Adam's side, and he brings her to the man. One commentator said, you know, God uh, put Adam to sleep, and then he made Eve, and Adam woke up, saw his naked wife, and very intelligently sang her a love song. In fact, if you look in your Bible in verse 23, the reason it's indented the way it is is this is poetry. Adam wakes up. He sees her. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Yes, God, you did it good. Awesome. Great work. That's what's going on here. That's the kind of emotion that's happening. It says, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast. That word means cling to, cleave to. Hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The idea here of this passage is that the purpose of marriage is one flesh. The purpose of marriage is intimacy. The purpose of marriage is not primarily Procreation, though that's part of it, and as you read in Genesis 1 and 2, there's a command to be fruitful and multiply, but that's not the main thing. The purpose of marriage is not primarily happiness or self-fulfillment, though that's possible in it. The purpose of marriage is one flesh, intimacy, not just physical sexual intimacy, though that's part of it, but physical, mental, emotional, spiritual Oneness. Listen, that's why if you're here and you're looking to get married, we will encourage you that what the Bible teaches is for you to find a spouse who shares your faith. And that's not to be exclusive or mean-spirited. What that is is to say the purpose of marriage is oneness. And if you are a Christian saying, my allegiance is to Jesus, and you marry someone who doesn't share that allegiance, it's harder to be one. Some of you, you know, you weren't, you weren't Christian when you got married, and now you are, and, and she's not, or he's not, and you, you know the difficulty of that. And there's grace that covers those things. The purpose of marriage is one flesh. One flesh. Then we get to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, what we learn basically is sin makes marriage really, really hard. 
right? Adam and Eve are tempted. Uh, they give in to that temptation. Uh, we see the beginning of the breakdown of the relationship between Adam and Eve. First, he's singing this love song. Now God is coming to Adam in Genesis 3 and saying, Adam, dude, uh, what happened, man? Like, I thought we were good, and then you went off and did the one thing I told you not to do. What happened? And Adam's like, God, the woman... By the way, the woman that you gave me is what he says. The woman that you gave me, God. You blew it, God. I thought she was supposed to be my complimentary other. And the woman that you, right, and there's this breakdown and there's this, there's this arguing already. Right? They're hiding, their, before they were naked and unashamed. Now they're hiding them and covering themselves with fig leaves. There's this breakdown. In fact, as God describes the consequences of sin in Genesis chapter 3, what he says is that there's going to be some conflict between a man and a wife. That the wife's desire is going to be to kind of rule over him and, the, and, the husband, and manipulate and to try to kind of be in charge rather than be a complimentary other. And the husband's response to that and the husband's way of leadership is often going to be angry and abusive and strong to try to put her in her place and other dumb stuff like that. That's marriage with sin. is those temptations and those struggles and those difficulties. Then we read the rest of the Old Testament and we see it doesn't get a lot better. Like there aren't very many shining examples in the Old Testament of, of a great marriage. The father of the faith, Abraham, a number of times just sort of pimps his wife out to the local king so that he won't get killed, cover his own skin. You read about King David. King David. Yeah, he had an affair, killed a guy over it. It's not good. Solomon, first member of the 700 Club. Hundreds and hundreds of wives and concubines, not faithful to one person. He writes a wonderful book in Song of Solomon that describes what a good marriage should be, but then he doesn't do it. Right? One thing you see over and over as well in the Bible is polygamy. Right? And sometimes people who are, especially advocates of, of uh, same-sex marriage, will say, well, how can you guys talk about that marriage is between one man and one woman? Because the Bible's filled with one man and many women. Yeah, yeah, but that's never God's design. Never, right? The design is there, Genesis 2.24. Read every account of polygamy and ask yourself, how does this end? And it never ends well. It's never good. Plural marriage is never held up to esteem or to imitate or to follow. It's always a disaster. The example is one flesh, intimacy. So the whole Old Testament doesn't go real well. Well, what about with Jesus? What about when we get to Jesus? Is he going to say anything related to marriage? Is he going to help? Is he going to help fix this? Interestingly, Jesus says very little about marriage at all. He doesn't talk about it much. He talks about a lot of things that if you apply them will definitely make a, a much better marriage, but he doesn't say a lot. The one thing that he says kind of over and over after quoting Genesis 2 is this, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What God has joined together, right? God brought you together in one flesh. You can't unone. What God made one, that's what Jesus says. He says there's some exceptions to this, right? There's moments of adultery and there's, there's things that, that like that that come up, and, but, but, but you can't unone what God has made one. And other than that, we don't, we don't have a lot. What about the rest of the New Testament? Well, the rest of the New Testament begins to give us a picture of what marriage could look like redeemed by Jesus. That's what it begins to do. 
The New Testament gives a picture of marriage, again, not super detailed, but detailed enough in ways that push against uh, the sin that just naturally comes and the culture and the way even of the day of the, of the New Testament. So here's some, some things from the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, the basic gist of 1 Corinthians 7 is stay together. Stay together. Same idea. You can't unone what God has made one. Stay together. Now he says, hey, there's, there's times of adultery, there's times of abandonment, there are some very extreme and rare exceptions. But stay together. If you're married, stay together. Now this flies in the face, not just of our culture today, but it also flew in the face of the Apostle Paul's culture. The Apostle Paul's culture, women had very few rights. They were not very esteemed. A man could absolutely sort of treat his wife almost as property, discard her, I'm upset with her, gone. And the New Testament writers, influenced by Jesus' teaching, say, no, 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 stay together. Stay faithful. Stay committed. Love even when it's unlovely. So that's 1 Corinthians 7. Then we get some descriptions in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 of how husbands and wives can begin to live together, not in a way that's arguing, not in a way that's trying to one-up, but in a way that actually will be beautiful. It will be more like what God had created. So husbands are told here to love their wives, to cherish their wives, to live in an understanding way with their wives, right? Notice it doesn't say husbands understand your wives because guys, we know that's impossible, right? God didn't ask us to do that. He did say live with her in an understanding way. Be compassionate. Rather than being domineering, be humble. Cherish her. Love her. Love her like Christ did when Christ laid down his life. And then to wives, wives, submit to your husbands, respect your husbands, follow them, honor them. Again, not trying to one-up, but humbly coming together in oneness. That's the picture of a godly marriage. That's the picture of a Christian marriage. And the big lesson, the big aha of the New Testament is that Jesus is the ultimate spouse, That's really the big teaching. So if you have your Bible, uh, go way to the right from where you are in in Genesis and go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you uh, don't know where that is, there's a table of contents just in the front of the Bible. Go ahead and look for that. It's kind of towards the middle of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, Paul goes through this whole instruction to uh, wives that they're to, uh, to submit to and to follow and to respect their husbands. He goes through this whole thing about husbands are supposed to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. He goes through this whole thing. Uh, just, just for example, verse, uh, 29, he's, or verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, he quotes Genesis 2. That's That's the foundation. But then he says this, verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that marriage is really just a picture of your relationship with Jesus. That Jesus is the ultimate spouse. Jesus is the true groom. And the church is the bride of Christ whom Jesus laid down his life. 
He slayed the dragon so he could win us, the princess. That's what Jesus did. He's the ultimate spouse. He's what a marriage is supposed to point to. Right? So a marriage is, is not just, especially if you're a Christian, is not just or even mainly for your personal fulfillment and happiness. It's supposed to be a reflection, a picture to the world around you. Here's what Jesus' love is like. That's what marriage is to be. So that's what the Bible teaches. How does that begin to flesh out then? How does that begin to look? So here's what I want to do to, to finish this. I want to share with you three priorities for a godly marriage. If you're going to take that biblical teaching about what a Christian marriage is and apply it, you'd come up with these three priorities for a godly marriage. Now, just full disclosure, when I put the message together the first time, I, I wrote it as three priorities for a great marriage. Here's what I realized. I can't promise that. Bless you. I don't want to overpromise. I can't promise a great marriage. You can do the three things that I'm going to tell you here in just a minute, and it might make no difference in terms of making the quality of your relationship better. In fact, it might make it worse. It might actually make your spouse even more frustrated with you. Maybe. I'm not saying it will. I certainly don't hope it will. But I'm saying it's possible. I think to the degree that two people apply these principles, it leads to a great marriage. But my point is, you may be in a thing where you're going to be the only one that commits to these things. It might not lead to a great flourishing marriage that you've always dreamed about. But here's the thing. If you're a follower of Christ, doing these things, prioritizing these three things, will lead you to a more godly life. A more Christ-imitating life. And here's the thing. The scripture tells us that true joy is found in the presence of God. True joy is doing what God has created you to do. So it may not lead to a better circumstance, but it will lead to more joy, even if your circumstance is hard. All right, so three priorities for a great marriage. All of these are counterintuitive. All of these are countercultural. You will not go into a, a Barnes & Noble and go through the marriage section, and if it's not a Christian book, you won't find things like this very often. This is totally a counterintuitive approach to marriage. Here's the first priority, is prioritize your commitment over your feelings. Prioritize your commitment over your feelings. Feelings are wonderful. Feelings are, are real, especially in the early days of a relationship and a newly married couple. I'm going to do a, a wedding in a couple weeks, and this, this couple, I mean, they, they have all these feelings, and they love each other, and it's so cute and kind of not cute, and, and they just can't imagine that there will ever be a day that they don't feel like they feel, right? And anyone who's been married for, I don't know, longer than three weeks <laughs> can go... It's not going to, you're not going to feel that way for that long, right? Like that's just, I mean, I've been married 13 years. I don't feel the way I felt a week or two into my marriage. Nor do I think that's wrong. I think that's actually normal, right? It's even built into the, the assumptions we make when we take vows in marriage, right? right what, what, vow, what, what vows do we make? For better or for worse? For richer or for poorer? in sickness and in health, right? It assumes worse. It assumes sickness. It assumes poor, right? It assumes a situation that the feelings aren't going to be all that great anymore. And what's going to get you through 
is a vow, is a commitment. Some people get very discouraged and they, they sort of lose hope that the feelings are faded or they'll go, you know, I just, it's not the same as it was. And, they, and, and let, me just, let me just encourage you, if you're disappointed by that, I think maybe you've been too influenced by romantic comedies or Disney or something else. I just want to tell you, real life is, that's the way it is. It's okay. C.S. Lewis is a philosopher and, and an, an author. He actually says this is a really good thing. I, this quote to me is really funny uh, from Mere Christianity. Here's what he says. Whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. If the old fairy tale ending, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mean they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor could ever be true and would be highly undesirable if it were. Who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? <laughs> Isn't that funny? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendship? But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. He's right. I, I didn't get a lot done during college because I was in love. <laughs> right? And some of you are going, I just, I don't, man, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if I feel in love anymore. And I love what Lewis says. Ceasing to be in love doesn't mean ceasing to love. What it means is that the love actually moves toward commitment. And here's the thing, I don't think the, the feelings have to go away, though they inevitably change, but the feelings actually can deepen to the degree that you are committed, right? It's the commitment that leads toward greater feelings. Oftentimes, I'll tell people when they go, I just don't know if I feel in love anymore. Okay, then commit. And if you commit, it will lead to greater feelings, right? What is more attractive than someone saying, I'm committed to you? I am in it for the long haul with you. I will love you. I will serve you. I will not go away. I will honor you. I will seek what's best for you. I'm in this no matter what. A lot of you are old enough to realize how attractive that could be. And if, and if, if you prioritize commitment, it might lead to the feelings. Here's how I wrote it kind of in my, in my notes. I said, your fickle feelings will not hold you together, but your conscious commitment will. It's not fickle feelings. Those can change. It's your conscious, intentional commitment. And Tim Keller, in this book on marriage, one of the points he makes is that this is exactly the way Christ has loved us. The reason why we should love in a way that prioritizes commitment over feelings is because that's what Jesus did for us. Here's how, here's how Keller writes it in the book. He says, when moments come where you find your spouse unlovely, you must remind yourselves that when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. No, he was in agony. And he looked at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He loved us, not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. Maybe you're looking at your spouse and they're not that lovely. Maybe they've betrayed you. Maybe they've hurt you. Maybe they've failed all your expectations thousands of times. Stay. Stay. 
That's what Jesus did for you. And that is a marriage that will honor God. Second priority. Prioritize your own need to change over your spouse's need to change. It's been said that women marry men hoping they'll change. And men marry women hoping they'll never change. But the reality is we change. And that, some of that's good, some of that's bad. Uh, Keller in his book says something really funny. He says there's a three-step process in marriage. He says when you get married, you get married to Mrs. Wonderful and, and uh, she's, you know, so great. And, and then you're not married for very long before you realize Mrs. Wonderful is pretty dang selfish. Like she's kind of all about her own thing. And it isn't too much longer, step two, before Mrs. Wonderful realizes the same thing about you. You know, you're kind of selfish. And then Keller says the third step is that you conclude that your selfishness isn't as big of a problem as hers. <laughs> Which, by the way, is pretty selfish. <laughs> right? And the reality then, if you develop that mindset, is you begin to sort of imagine that yourself, you're above, you're above your spouse. The real problem is that, you know, he won't communicate. The real problem is that she wants me to read her mind all the time. And it's always her, and it's always him, and it's always their fault. Right? I, I could tell you, our other pastors, if you've ever done any counseling with any kind of couple, one of the things you realize is that the kind of counseling moments where both people are blaming each other never resolve. doesn't work. Only when someone is willing to say, I'm the problem. It's me. At least, I'm the only problem I can fix. I'm the only problem I can work on. When that begins to happen, at least for that person who owns up to it, there begins to be some hope. There begins to be some change. There begins to be some growth. But only when that happens, only when you see that you're the biggest problem in your marriage, will there ever begin to, to be a, an opportunity for you to honor God and to work on your own sin and to humble yourself. Here's the thing. For Christians, the gospel provides two things that make it where this is possible. Okay? The gospel gives you two resources that make it where you could begin to see, okay, I'm going to prioritize my need to change over hers. Here's the first one. The gospel itself, in bringing you to faith, made you humble yourself and admit that you were a sinner. Right? What does the gospel tell us? The gospel tells us that God is holy, God is perfect, and we are sinners deserving God's wrath. And when that moment hits home to your heart, you fall on your knees and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. Wow, God, all I bring to this relationship is my sin, my stupidness, my mess. And you, you make that step. You have that moment. And you realize, I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer God. But then you go into a marriage and forget it. See, but the gospel gives you the humility to go, yeah, honey, I, I could make an excuse and I think I might have reasons and I need to change. The gospel gives you that power. Without it, 
or to the degree that you forget it, you'll bow up and you'll justify and you'll come up with all these reasons why it's really their fault. But the gospel says humble yourself. You became a Christian by admitting that you're a failure. So just admit you're a failure in your marriage and you'll receive grace. That's the first resource the gospel gives. The second is the picture of Jesus, the example of Jesus. Right? Jesus' love was not conditional. Jesus' love was unconditional. Jesus wasn't hanging there on the cross going, hey guys, hey, 50-50, meet me halfway. No. What did Jesus say on the cross? Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It was unconditional love. It was unconditional grace. It was not well, I will if you will, and let's negotiate, and let's manipulate each other. No, no, no. It was unconditional love, unconditional grace, unconditional forgiveness. And the point of so much Jesus, of Jesus' teaching, even the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son in, in Luke 15, is a parable of saying, what if you sinned the worst you could ever imagine? Would God still accept you back? And the answer is, yes. And if you've been forgiven like that, and you've been loved like that, and you've experienced grace like that, then you have the ability to give that kind of love to. Prioritize your need to change over your spouses. Here's the third one, the last one. This is just right out of Ephesians 5, is to prioritize self-sacrifice over self-fulfillment. Self-sacrifice over self-fulfillment. Now, listen, we all want marriage to be fulfilling, you wouldn't get married if you, I mean, no, I've never met anyone that's like, why, hey, why are you thinking about getting married? You know, 40 years of misery sounded pretty good. I, I'm in. Right? No one says that. Right? Everyone wants it to be happy, wants it to be joyful, wants it to be fulfilling, and it can be. It absolutely can be. But if that's the goal of your heart and your life, then here's what will happen. You will turn your spouse into something your spouse was never meant to be. See, the scripture in Genesis 2 said that your spouse is to be a complementary other. And your spouse can be a good complementary other, but your spouse is a terrible God. And if you're looking to your spouse to fulfill you, to, to fill the hole in your heart, that's a pressure that that person can't carry. They can't take it. They're going to fail. Even all your frustrations about them right now is evidence that they fail at being God. And so instead of aiming for self-fulfillment, aim for self-sacrifice. That's the point of the Christian view of, of marriage. Right? In, in Ephesians 5, right before this whole section on wives and husbands, the scripture here says that we are to, in Ephesians 5.21, all of us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the wife is called to submit to her husband, and the husband is called to die for his wife. Right? There's this submission language. And this word submit has its origins in the military. And I think that's interesting because in the military, when you sign up for the military, you're saying, I have no more rights. Yes, sir. No, sir. I will get in line. I don't have unilateral control over my life. I don't have absolute authority over my life. Right? That's what he's saying. When you get married, you're not totally free anymore. You're now one with somebody. And you're commanded, if you're a husband, to sacrificially love her. And if you're a wife, to humbly 
submit to and follow him. Both of which are dying to yourself. Can we just be honest? This is the part of marriage that I don't like very much. It's a part of marriage I, I never feel like I'm very good at. I don't know how I could be. I mean, die the way Christ did. So put the other person for... That's just really, really hard. And yet, it's the path to blessing. It's the path to godliness. And it shouldn't surprise us because at the center of, of all kind of love is a dying to yourself. It's not love if it's just everybody meeting your needs. What's love is when it's sacrificial. When, when you're tired at the end of a day and you still give attention and interest. When, when your spouse is dying to hear what's really on your mind, and even though you don't really do that very well, you, you try to put it into words. Right? All of those things are a sacrifice. All of those things are hard. All of those things are difficult. But that's what it is. Now, now this, is, this is just tough, right? Sin makes this tough. But we're also in a culture that just the number one value, the number one idol, the number one competition with God is self-fulfillment. I, I want to be what I want to be and nothing can stop me, right? We even, uh, a couple years ago, there was a wonderful movie where an anthem was written so that every little boy and girl could learn this value of self-fulfillment. My kids love it. It's called Frozen. Here's what Queen Elsa says. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That's the anthem of our culture. And because of that, and we're so, we, we can't, none of us can help it. None of us. Not me, not you. None of us can help how influenced we are by that reality. You know, it's funny, before the first service, uh, my, my eight-year-old was in here, and we were kind of running through the slides and stuff, and she saw that one by Elsa, and obviously it got her attention, and, and uh, she read the quote, and she said, well, Dad, I guess Elsa wasn't married. <laughs> yep. <laughs> she got it right. And yet, how many people think, I want to have all this fulfillment from my spouse, but I want to have all this fulfillment from all the other things I want to do, because it's all really about... What can I do? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. No. That's not a path to a strong marriage. That's not a path to honoring God. That's a path toward misery. Do you want a godly marriage that honors the Lord the other 167 hours of the week? Prioritize commitment over feelings. Prioritize your need to change over your spouse's. And prioritize self-sacrifice over self-fulfillment. Here's the good news. As a Christian, you have all the resources to do that. Because Jesus, the one you love, the one you are united to by faith, is the ultimate spouse. The one who, in the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, has a never-stopping, never-failing, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. That's how he loves you. And if you've been loved like that, you can love that way too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your promises to us. Thank you for your faithfulness. God, thank you for the grace of marriage. And God, wherever we are here today, uh, for those who are married or single or divorced or widowed, wherever we are, would we experience your love? You are the ultimate spouse. You're the one who didn't look down from the cross because we were lovely, but to make us lovely. 
God, help us to love with that kind of commitment and loyalty and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.